You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 5 to 25. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them are righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will be your son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out... He could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Great. Thanks, Elliot. Yeah, so this morning we're starting the Advent series. Who's excited about Christmas? Who's one of those people who doesn't get excited about Christmas until like the 23rd? Oh, come on. Um, So we put our tree up last week. The rule in our house is that my birthday is on the 20th of November. Before that, no Christmas. After that, Christmas all the way. Um, So this year we're looking at what we're calling the supporting cast. Instead of telling these stories from the point of view of the people that we always hear these stories from. So we're not going to talk much about Mary and Joseph or the wise men or the shepherds. We're going to look at those people who have other parts to play in the story. Those people who we don't normally talk about quite as much. So as my Mike said, this morning I'm going to 
going to be looking at the story from the point of view of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We'll be talking about John the Baptist and Herod and a few others. And next week, as Mike said, uh, as part of our nativity, we'll be looking at this story from the point of view of the animals. So make sure you come along next week to hear what Danny Donkey, uh, Caleb Camel and Charlie Chicken think about all this story. Um, sometimes it's important, I think, to acknowledge those people who aren't at the center of everything, isn't it? It's a bit like on a Sunday morning. You will see people like me standing up here, you know, holding a microphone, talking or singing. But all of this every single week wouldn't happen without Lillian or Louise or Dan or Graham or Laura or Nathan or the team of welcomers or tea and coffee people and all of those people who aren't usually here holding a microphone. So I thought as we start this series on the supporting cast, let's have a round of applause, please, for our supporting cast. Sometimes people are happy to sit in the background, aren't they? Not to be on centre stage. Sometimes people are happy to be the supporting cast. And then there are other times when the supporting cast really want to take the centre stage. Everything we found. 
absolutely love that. Uh, partly because clearly she hasn't rehearsed, does she? Because she doesn't know the verses at all. So she's really quiet in the verses. And it gets to the bit that she knows. And she is going to let everybody know that she knows that part. Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about over these next few weeks. This idea of the supporting cast. Elliot read to us from Luke chapter 1, which is one of the, the only one of the four accounts of Jesus' life which tells this story about Elizabeth and Zechariah. Uh, Luke tells a bit of this backstory. These are some of the verses that Elliot read to us. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest called Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah or Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. He starts this by saying, in the time of Herod, because he's making the point that this is about politics, this is a political story, this is something that will challenge the political status. He also talks about the fact that this is a priest. He's from a priestly division. He's a, his wife is a descendant of Aaron. He's making this point that this is an important person who's got an important role to play in this story. And then he goes on to say that Zechariah goes to uh, the temple. Now, what would have happened there is that the temple, the priests served at the temple twice each year for a week each time. When it was your time, you would go to the temple and you would stay there for a week and then come back. And while you were there, you would draw lots at various points because one of the best things that you could do one of the most important parts of this week was the offering of incense so each day the priests would draw lots to determine who should have this great honor of going to offer the incense so Zechariah pulls out the longest straw he goes in to do this and then at this part Gabriel turns up now when I get to this part of the story, I always wonder whether Gabriel had anything else to do or whether he was just the surprise pregnancy angel. <laughs> Maybe that was just his thing. <laughs> anyway, so Gabriel tells Zechariah that Elizabeth's going to have a baby. And then we get to this point where Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. Now, Elizabeth... We don't know exactly how old she was. I've read a number of books and done a bit of study on this. The best thing that we can come up with through all of my study and my master's in theology and my Baptist qualifications and all this is she was very old. <laughs> but what we know is that she was so old that she wasn't able to give birth. And there are various points in this story where it talks about the shame that would have been on Elizabeth. Again, patriarchal society, no shame on Zechariah here, just the shame on Elizabeth for being unable to have kids. And then what happens is that uh, the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that Elizabeth is going to give birth. And he says, hang on a minute, how is this going to happen? Because my wife is old and I am old. And then the point, uh, then from that point forward, Zechariah can't talk until the baby is born, which I always think is pretty unfair because he's just being pretty pragmatic there. I'm pretty sure that would have been my response if I had heard that story and probably the response of everybody else in the room as well. But Kathleen Norris, who's a theologian, she says, God's response to Zechariah is to strike him dumb during the entire term of his son's gestation, giving him a pregnancy of his own. When he does speak again, and we'll talk about this later, at the end of this pregnancy, after John is born, when he does speak again, it is to praise God. He's had nine months to think all this over. 
There are a couple of things that we should talk about. Medically, yes, it would have been impossible that Elizabeth could have had a baby. And then we also know that the birth of Jesus is due to a pregnancy, which is some kind of medical, medical miracle as well. And the question that often gets asked about both of these stories, Mary's story as well as Elizabeth's story, is, is it true? Is it literal fact? Did it actually happen like that? A few years ago, I read a great quote from a theologian called Brian McLaren, who many of you would have heard of. And he says, but what if the point of this, what if the purpose of these pregnancies is to challenge us to blur the line between what we think is possible and what we think is impossible? Could we ever come close to a time where swords would be beaten into plowshares, as it says in the Old Testament, or to bring it up to date now, could we ever come close to a time where we can close the doors of our food bank? If you think never it's impossible, well, maybe you need to think again because maybe it's not too late for something beautiful to be born. Maybe the present moment is pregnant with possibilities that we can't see or even imagine. And in this light, the actual point of these stories is a challenge to us all to dare to hope, like Elizabeth and Mary, that the seemingly impossible is possible. Now, I'm going to pause here and talk about something else that's important because in one respect, Elizabeth's story is one that's heard in loads of other places in the Bible. And her story is one that influenced a book that I read recently. It's called A Pastoral Theology of Childlessness by someone called Emma Nash. And in it, she talks about a number of people that we read about in the Bible. Abraham and Sarah, Elkanah and Hannah and Jacob and Rachel, Isaac and Rebekah, Manna and his wife, the parents of Samson and Elizabeth and Zechariah. She says, as somebody who has failed to have a child, there is something alienating about these stories because they always end with a miracle child. She says, quite rightly, that when infertility is talked about in the Bible, all it is is a literary device to heighten the miracle. It's only because there's good news at the end of the story. In these stories, you just know, don't you, when you're reading them, that there will be a miraculous ending and all will be okay. She quotes a guy called Kevin Ellis, who is a, uh, another theologian who's failed to, to have kids. And he says, Hannah pleads tearfully for children in the story about Hannah in the Old Testament. And he says, how I wish sometimes that her prayers had not been answered because they would then resonate with my own. This is a tough one for us to talk about, isn't it? But we have to talk about it. Because for too long, we've not heard these stories. Emma Nash says, when we only tell stories of triumph in the face of adversity, what people hear is that unless they have a happy ending to offer, they must keep quiet. If that is you, and if that is your story, please know that you can find solace in this community. Find someone you trust who you can talk about these things with. Talk to me about these things. 
if you're feeling strong enough, challenge the way we do things here. Challenge the language that we use if it isn't inclusive in this way. Because church should be a place which transcends ideas of the nuclear family. Where we care for and support people at whatever stage you're at. Single, married, divorced, widowed, kids, no kids, never wanted to have kids. Whatever your story is. If this is going to be an authentic community full of people with authentic relationships, we need to be able to bring our whole selves to this place. When Luke was writing this story, I wonder if he was mindful of this problem. Because of all the writers of the accounts of Jesus' life, Luke is the one who puts more emphasis on drawing out Jesus' relationship with women. And you have to remember that he was living in a society and writing at a time that was so patriarchal that to even be touched by a woman outside of your family would have rendered you ritually impure. Yeah, Luke, unlike most writers of that time, he tells women's stories. He spends half of the first chapter talking about Elizabeth and Mary's first meeting after they both fall pregnant. And remember... All that stuff that we read, we haven't even met Joseph yet. Chapter 1 is about Mary. We only meet Joseph later in chapter 2. So through telling this story of Elizabeth and through focusing on her and on Mary and telling this story early on, I think one of the important things that Luke is telling us is that God uses those we don't expect. God uses the ordinary. We see this time and time again. There are so many stories in the Bible which tell similar things. About Abraham who lied about his wife. About Jacob who deceived his brother. About Moses who murdered an Egyptian. David was an adulterer. Peter denied knowing Jesus. Paul started off persecuting Jesus' followers. God always uses the ordinary This is a lady called Irina Sendler. She studied at Warsaw University in the 30s, and she was a social worker in Warsaw when the German occupation of Poland began in 1939. In 1940, the Nazis herded Jews into the Warsaw ghetto and built a wall which separated it from the rest of the city. Disease, especially typhoid, was rampant in this place. Now, social workers weren't allowed inside the ghetto, so she got some fake ID, and she passed herself off as a nurse, which meant that she could go in and take in some food and some clothes and some medicine. When she was in there, she saw the situation that was going on, the circumstances that these people were living in, and by 1942, she joined a Polish underground organization. She recruited another 10 women that she knew, And they began going in and rescuing Jewish children. They would smuggle these kids out in boxes, in suitcases, in sacks. They would sedate babies to make sure they wouldn't cry. They had a dog which would bark when they saw the police coming, when they saw the Nazi soldiers coming. During time and time and time again when she was doing this, she saved 2,500 kids. Two and a half thousand kids saved, not by some kind of specialist military operative, not by an outstanding soldier, 
but by a young social worker. God uses ordinary people to do unexpected things. But hear me out on this one. I'm not saying that we all have to do remarkable things unless we've given up our lives to risk everything to do something amazing that God doesn't use us. Has anyone heard of the exceptional immigrant idea? It's the idea that we should support any change to immigration policy which allows more immigrants in because of the remarkable things that immigrants have done in this country. People tell stories about people like Michael Marx, who was a Polish Jew who emigrated to the UK and then set up a stall at Leeds Market where everything cost a penny. And then that did well, so he set up another couple of stalls in Castleford and in Wakefield. And then they grew and they grew and eventually this became Marx and Spencer. Or Gafour Hussein, another immigrant, who in 2015 read an article which said there were 15,000 stranded refugees on the Austrian-Slovenian border who were only being given a piece of bread, some tinned food, and a little bit of water each day. There were no warm meals or freshly cooked food, so he sold his car, and he sold his wife's car, and he used all of his savings, and he bought this bus and he turned it into a mobile kitchen, and he filled it with food, and he drove to Austria. Then on the way back, he stopped off in Dunkirk in France, and he stayed there for 10 weeks over Christmas, and he cooked for another 4,000 refugees. Now he's driven this bus around the world, and he's now fed over 2 million refugees. So... The exceptional immigrant story says, well, our current policy would have banned Michael Marx and Gafur Hussein from coming in. And then look what we'd have lost. So we should open our borders more. We, we should open our borders so that we are opening our doors to this potential talent. But sometimes I think we need to remember that people don't have to do extraordinary things. They don't have to be exceptional immigrants. We should just welcome people because we care for people, not because of what they might go on to do for us. So I'm not saying that we all have to be our own version of Irina Sendler or Michael Marx or Gafur Hussein, because I'm guessing that if you're anything like me, we've all had times where we've felt a bit like Zechariah or Elizabeth instead. On the outside of the story, not at the center of it, Maybe more than that, that we're not actually good enough to be at the center of the story. That all we deserve is to be on the outside. Because we're not bright enough. We're not sociable enough. Maybe we've felt this in a church context. Maybe we've felt it in work as well. Imposter syndrome. I'm not good enough for this job. I'm walking into an interview and I don't feel I should get it because that other person, they're cleverer than I am. I'm leading this meeting, but everyone's going to know that I'm not bright enough. But I think that's one of the exciting parts of the Christmas story because the Christmas story tells us that God cares for the normal people. Elizabeth was childless, which means she would have been a bit of an outcast, even if her husband was a priest. And we know God cares for the outcasts. It's a story that we hear time and time again. One of the stories that we do tell at Christmas time is that story about the shepherds. The shepherds were the, the lowest of the low. The way that Jewish culture worked at that time was that the best, the brightest became rabbis. They were the teachers of the Jewish faith. 
Everybody would have been taught the scriptures at a young age. And if you were good, if you were clever, if you were bright, you carried on going up the ladder to reach rabbi level. Those who would have failed that first test went off to do more menial jobs like shepherding. So there's that angle, but there's also the social angle about it as well. Shepherding was not a glamorous job. It involved spending all day and night in all weathers, outside with sheep, often sleeping rough. It wasn't glamorous. It wasn't the kind of career choice that you would have put down first on your list unless you had no other option. God reveals himself to people who are near the bottom of the pecking order in society. God chooses to reveal himself to the failures, to the outcasts, to those who society said wasn't good enough, to a teenage girl, to the old woman who couldn't have kids. And I love that. I love that story. I love it because God gets God's hands dirty. God chooses to get involved in our story and does it by standing alongside those who until this point have been on the outside. God says to the shepherds, to the unmarried pregnant teenager, to the old woman who would have been shunned by society, God says, I am with you and I am for you. You are no longer on the outside because I am involved and I am part of your story. And I think this is what Christmas is about, about a God who decides not to stand outside, but to get involved. See, Luke's scene has everyone, a priest who in other circumstances would have had really good standing in society, a childless woman, an unmarried pregnant teenager, and at the heart of it all, God coming to earth as a human. It's a story which says, whoever you are, there's a role for you. You're in. You're included in this story. And as we often say, whatever story you've been told, whatever story you've told yourself, it's still true today. You are in, you are included, you are loved, and you are welcomed. And I think our challenge today is to call other people into that story. It's Christmas time, which I think gives us an opportunity that we don't get at any other point in the year. It's the time of year when people who might not think that God is for them, people who might not think that they are enough, that they are loved, that they're included. Maybe it's easier to start some conversations with people at this time of year to let them know that they're loved, to let them know that this God is for them as well. And just as I end, at the end of this chapter, Zechariah's story ends with a song. After his son is born, he regains his voice and he sings a song of praise. In this song, he says that his son John will open up the way for the Messiah who will save us, not just spiritually, but politically and practically too. And at the end of that chapter, verses 76 to 79 say these words, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people, the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death 
to guide our feet into the path of peace. 2,000 years later, I think the same challenge applies to us. How can we prepare the way? How can we open the door for people to experience God's unconditional love which transforms lives? How can we guide people's feet into the path of peace? Maybe the extraordinary thing you could do is go with Ruth later on today and campaign for peace in Gaza. And maybe the ordinary thing you could do is just to invite someone to Carols by Candlelight. God loves the inclusion of the ordinary. Every one of us has a role to play. Let me pray for us as we end. God, we ask that you would help us to prepare the way to guide people towards your unconditional and extravagant love for them. God, help us to be peacemakers, to guide people towards the path of peace, not just on a global scale, but also in our own lives and our own relationships. And help us to remember this Advent and forever that the world can be changed by ordinary people following the example of an extraordinary person. Amen.